to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of When by Dan Pink, one in the, the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. A bit of a throwback to one of our old songs. <laughs> That's right. A very old song back from season one, episode 20. Uh, still up. I thought we took it down, but it's still up. <laughs> this book is all about... Timing. Timing. <laughs> You've heard that timing is everything. The trouble is... We don't really know much about timing. Um, our lives are a constant stream of when decisions, when to change, when to deliver bad news, when to schedule a class, when to end a marriage, when to go for a run, when to get serious about a project, when to get serious about a person. But these uh, decisions, we kind of take it from a, some kind of mixture of gut feeling, intuition, guesswork, and we think that timing is a bit of an art where we just got to try to feel it and work it out. Yeah, that's it. We don't like sort of just take a step back and try and figure out timing. Timing just flows. But this book is really about treating timing much more like it's a science because there's a lot of books we've read. We've read 300 or so. We've done hundreds and hundreds of books. Pretty much every one of them you could say is a what book or a how book, but we've never really done a when book. And according to The Pink Man, it's almost equally important. If you want to measure the world's emotional state, you'd need one of those big old mood rings, you know, those mood rings that change color based on apparently how you're feeling. I don't know how legit or scientific they are, but I suppose you could get one that wraps around the whole globe. But if Maybe you, <laughs> a bit if of a mission there. If you, if you can't find something big enough, then probably Twitter is probably a good example. Now, according to Twitter and their SEC reports and all that sort of stuff, they've got 1 billion humans with an account. I think that's BS. <laughs> that's going to be BS, on it? Elon, Elon didn't believe that, did he? No, he did not for a second. But let's just, let's just take them at their word for half a second. One billion and they're pumping out 6,000 tweets every single second. So two researchers from Cornell University studied more than 500 million tweets across 2.4 million users in 84 different countries. Whew, it's a lot of work for two <laughs> researchers to come across 500 million tweets. Anyway, what they tried to do is hope to measure people's emotions. They want to see the positive type of emotions like enthusiasm, confidence, uh, greatness. I think that is. I typed lateness, but I think greatness. Uh, and also the negative emotions like anger, uh, lethargy, guilt. And they want to see how the positive and the negative changed over time. And what they found was a very consistent day-to-day pattern across people's waking hours. Now, this was controlled for it doesn't matter who you are, what culture, what uh, where you are in the world, North American, Asian, Muslim, atheist, black, white, brown, blue, or yellow, it doesn't matter. Everyone has the exact same pattern. That is that in the morning, you've generally got a positive effect. People just tweet nice things about the sunshine. Then in the afternoon, that's when the the old Twitter um, (laughs) bots come into play and everyone's um, talking shit at each other and doing shouting matches. But then in the early evening, it climbs back up. It didn't matter if it was a, a Monday, a Thursday, or a Saturday. The shape was always the same. This you know peak in the morning and then a trough in the afternoon and then a recovery in the evening. And it turns out that that same pattern didn't just apply to tweets, but pretty much every element of our daily lives. We go through a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Now, this pattern was first actually discovered in 1729 by a French astronomer, Jean-Jacques something, something, something. And <laughs> Give he, it a crack. Give it a crack. Jean-Jacques' daughter, Demain Moiran, and... Um, Jaxi, he, he noticed that the potted plants in the office, so very different to tweets in this sense, the mimosa paduca plants, they closed their leaves up as twilight approached, but unfilled their leaves when sunlight streamed through the windows. Yeah. 
pretty cool to be, you know, you think plants, you didn't know how alive plants were, but yeah, it seems like they they close up at night, they open up during the day for to grab as much of sunlight as possible. And big old Jean-Jacques, uh, he thought he'd do an experiment. He thought he'd close the blinds, he'd seal the lights, he'd seal off any sunlight from getting in the room. Uh, he kept the light on all night. Turns out they still did this opening and closing thing even though there was no change to light. So he thought, that's bloody bizarre. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stick him in the cupboard, like sticky tape all the holes and it's not possible to get any light in there whatsoever. Mm. And then when he opened it up, he still found that they were still opening and closing even though there was no external influence on them whatsoever. It's pretty bizarre, isn't it? Like how the hell does a plant know it's nighttime outside um, and hence know when to close its leaf? It's like it's almost conscious. So what do you do when it's conscious? You throw it in the cupboard and lock it away. (laughs) But um, of course, the plant wasn't reacting to external light. It didn't know it was nighttime outside, but it was operating on its own internal clock. Mm. Which is a bit of a banger in 1729 for old, old Jacques, uh, thinking that plants would have some kind of internal biological clocks. But it turns out that pretty much every living organism, even from the single-cell organisms lurking in the bottom of ponds to multi-celled organisms driving trucks and tractors like us humans, we all have these internal timekeepers. Um, we all have these circadian rhythms that regardless if we're inside, outside, it's dark, it's light, we're still operating on this internal clock. So there's a load of studies that have uh, come to the same conclusions. It wouldn't be a, a book or how-to or even a when-to book without throwing a bit of Daniel Kahneman in there, Nobel <laughs> Prize winning. Uh, so He gets you know, Kahneman in a couple of times. He gets, everyone gets in Kahneman yeah. a lot, I think. <laughs> but uh, our cognitive abilities at the end of the day, what these, these studies are saying, it's not just remaining static over the course of the day. You're someone who's changing throughout the day over that 16 hours when you're awake uh, there are times when you're faster, slower, you're smarter, you're dimmer. There's sometimes when you're you're dumber and smarter. I already said that, didn't I? Maybe I'm a bit dumber. Maybe it's uh, it must be in the trough, mate. It must be in the trough. Uh, creative, less creative. Um, <laughs> in some parts of the day than others. It's more uh, extreme than we realize as well, actually. Mate, it's absolutely extreme. It turns out that at some points of the day, you're as productive as if you just smashed two shots or a big pint of beer. Uh, mm. And it turns out that these... Time of the day effects can explain 20% of the variance in human performance in cognitive tasks. It's pretty big, isn't it? So, the exact same effect as having a couple of pints because you're pretty yeah. rusty after a couple of pints, I'd yeah. say, is the exact same uh, amount of effect as well. Yeah, compared to if you did something in the morning versus the afternoon. It's pretty crazy. But it's not that just like every task is better at one point of the day. It's actually there's a different types of tasks that are better for different times of the day. So, there's some things that he calls vigilance tasks. So that means you need to be vigilant, uh, you need to have inhibitory control, you need to be basically keeping an eye out for distractions and just focusing in on solving this analytical problem. These types of vigilance tasks are best done during your peak. Mate, we got, there was another comment in there, but I, th- I was waiting for you to, to drop what it What was in that there. one? The AA did the IQ test <laughs> in the mid-arvo. <laughs> you wanted me to bring it up? <laughs> You were being humble, just wait for skipped, me to bring it up. I skipped over it, yeah. No. It is true. So, you did the IQ test in the mid-arvo, equivalent mm. to having a multiple pints. Man, imagine if I did in the in the peak. <laughs> 20% more. It'd be off the charts, even beyond what the charts already are. I, I, think, it, I think it was in the morning. I think I just wanted to <laughs> slip in there. It could have been 20% higher still. <laughs> so, what are you saying there? So there's, there's a couple of different types of tasks and, and one type is the vigilance task. Yeah, he brings in he brings in the Kahneman special. I reckon we've said this at least 
once or twice in the potty, but you got Linda, she's 31 years old, she's single, she's outspoken, she's very bright. In college, Linda majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and uh, she participated in anti-nuclear demonstration marches. So knowing what we know about Linda, which is more likely? Is it more likely that Linda is a bank teller, or that Linda is a bank teller who is active in the feminist movement? Well, she's a bit of an activist there, so I think the first time I read it, I obviously got this wrong, saying that uh, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. So, um, and what you perform there when you believe that is called the conjunction fallacy because uh, if you think if B is a subset of A, so we've got the key word there is and mm. in the feminist movement, um, you're actually narrowing down the possibilities significantly and uh, that's a big fallacy you perform That's right. There. Even if... 99.9% of bank tellers are active in the feminist movement, but there's that 0.001 that aren't, then being just a bank teller is much more likely because it is basically included in that in the other part as well. So that's just one of those vigilance tasks that if you're switched on, if you're in the morning, if you're in your peak, you're probably going to pick up more likely than not that, okay, I'm, I'm seeing the trick here. I'm going to get the correct answer. And there's, of course, a lot of different tasks that fall under this category. I don't know if the top of your head, Asho, what sort of things would fit the, the vigilancy. <laughs> Pretty much anything that uh, requires you to have sort of distraction-free focus. focus. Pure focus, yeah. right. Like there's a, almost like, you know, like a maths question. You're working towards an answer. There's a correct answer. And you need to just work through it to get to the end. Little creativity required and just sort of hardcore brute brain work. Brute brain work. I like it. Now, there's a different type of task and that's uh, insight problems. And these are best performed um, during the recovery periods of the day. So, this is where you don't need the vigilance. You don't need to be thinking so hardcore, brute brain power and you actually need fewer inhibitions. So, uh, sometimes... That vigilance can actually be something that hinders your performance on this different type of task. Yeah, it's kind of like in the peaks, you're the guards that are guarding your mind, they're blocking out all the distractions. When it gets to the end of the day, the guards are a little bit tired and a few little distractions start slipping through the door there. But actually, that can be good for these types of insight problems. So, he's got an example here uh, where you know less vigilance and fewer inhibitions might actually help. We've got Ernesto. He's a dealer in antique coins. One day, someone brings him a beautiful bronze coin. Now, this coin, it's got an emperor's head on one side, and on the other side, it's got the date stamped, 544 BC. Now, Ernesto, he examines the coin. He thought, you know, if this was a good coin, he'd probably buy it, but instead, he calls the cops. Why? Did you get this? I did not. <laughs> Man, I went down many rabbit holes. I thought... Maybe in 544 BC, maybe there were no emperors, but I was like, oh, I think there probably were emperors. I was like, maybe they didn't have bronze in that. Maybe they didn't have coins in 544 BC, but I basically had to look up the answer. It's sort of vigilance, sort of cliche yeah. vigilance <laughs> answers you got there. But yeah. um, for those listening right now, 544 BC, that's the key word. Mm. None of them is right, but it's pretty clever <laughs> when you think about how silly it is because oh, yeah. the date 544 BC... Uh, they couldn't call it that because no. <laughs> before Christ, you didn't know Christ was coming. You didn't know he was coming in 544 years, did you? So, the coin's obviously a fake, not made in 544 BC. So. That's right. If you were alive in 544 BC, you weren't calling that time 544 BC. Mm. <laughs> you were just living. Mate, even, there's guards at the door, there's guards not at the door. I'm just not getting that one. <laughs> I'm telling you now. doesn't but, matter how many how many uh, intruders are striding through that door, mate. It wasn't going to help me. But in the end of the day, you do need to be thinking outside the square 
outside the box in some certain uh, sort of tasks of the day. And as we're saying, it's all about when you choose to do these things because when you're not working best cognitively and you've got so much brute power in your brain and that's running on low, sometimes these sorts of different tasks are better to do at the end of the day, maybe even half drunk. That's, well, that's what he, yeah, you know, things that require creativity, insight, design, creative writing, other types of art, they're generally best in that afternoon trough where you're not inhibited, where the guards are, are taking a break and you can just do some wild random shit. So, I think you artificially create these with your late night red wine sessions to reduce your inhibitions and go full creative mode. Well, it's actually quite true. Uh, I mm. do get a lot out of those red wine creativity sessions where you, you're pretty blind by the end of it. <laughs> couple of bottles of red down and you start doing some wacky stuff that you wouldn't do otherwise <laughs> i remember like on a full i've had a few very productive oh, sessions yeah. where i was just playing around with things and all of a sudden the next day i'm like jesus <laughs> well done aj that's it if you if you're doing those uh linda the bank teller tasks it would have been a massive flop but when you're doing the ernesto coin you know imaginative uh creative tasks they'd slip a slip, i don't know dan pink said slip a bit of yeah. red wine in there but do it in the trough. That's yeah. it. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Do it in the recovery. So, up until this point, we've spoken about the peak trough recovery. And sometimes you're better off doing things in your peak and sometimes you're better off doing things in your recovery. So, two totally different types of, of categories. So, now we're going to drill down into a little bit more nuance because it's not really the same for everyone. They've, everyone's got their own circadian rhythms that work for them. Yeah. He says that there's, um, there's larks, there's owls, and there's third birds. So the larks, they're the early risers. He said that makes up about 14% of the population. They wake up early. They go to bed early. They've got the same shape, the same peak trough recovery, but everything's kind of just shuffled back an hour or two. So you're probably peaking you know, between 7 and 10. Uh, you're troughing between 11 and 12, and then you're recovering between 3 and 6, for example. Then you've got third birds. They're most optimal between 9 a.m. to midday. They've got an afternoon trough between 1 and 4. Then their recovery time is about 5 to 7 or roughly thereabouts. And so third birds, that's kind of what we're talking about, that peak trough recovery, 65% of people. Then you've got owls that are 21% of people. Their shape's kind of flipped in the other direction. The owls, they're staying up late at night. They're sleeping in really late. They generally have like their recovery period in the morning, say between 11 and 2. Then they've got a trough from 3 to 6. Then they're peaking between like mm. 7 and 11 at night. Yeah. Um, so it's very a very different pattern there. And they're probably, you know, if you think of the stereotypical coder who's in the dark, who's staying up till 2 a.m. and then they sleep in till 11 a.m. Yeah, definitely not me, man. I'm, I'm definitely a lark. Uh, I read the 5am club and would, didn't have to work too hard to start getting up at 5am. <laughs> you know what time I got up this morning? Not by choice. 3.50. Yeah, just woke so, up. Some days I just wake up. So it's easy for me to fall asleep now. It didn't used to be actually. And I just wake up, the brain's going. I'm like, all right, yeah. all right, it's going. Mate, that's very lark-like. Yeah. Mate, and, and also... Oh, the, about the, to crash though and it's only 8.13. I was, <laughs> was going to say, there are some times when we, if we're doing a potty and we hit 11 and you're done for the day. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are times like that. And for you, mate, you're probably... Uh, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more just your stock standard middle of the road third bird. You know, get up around seven-ish, work well in the mornings and then probably crash sort of early, early avo and then hit mm. that recovery in the evening well it is a bit refreshing like if you're watching Dwayne the Rock Johnson or David Goggins you, <laughs> or Arnie you're probably going to think you're going to be up at 4.30am or Jocko and just um, post on Instagram to let everyone know how hardcore you are but you know everyone's circadian rhythms are different and it makes no sense for them that'd just be waking up at the very wrong time of the day for themselves if you know if they were a night owl uh, trying to inauthentically act like That's an right. arc right <laughs> if you were if you were if you're an owl 
and you're not really getting to sleep properly till midnight or one. Watching Jocko and Dwayne. (laughs) You see Jocko at 4.30 and like, oh man, I got to get up early. You just completely screw yourself, I reckon. (laughs) Yeah. So in terms of synchronizing in the takeaway here, firstly, we need to figure out who we are. Are you a lark, third bird or an owl? Don't try and be someone else. Know who you are or whatever makes most sense for you. Because really all you're doing is shifting your day forward or backwards, right? So it's kind of arbitrary, this 5 a.m. stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then secondly, once you know what you are, well, also you've got to work out what types of tasks are you doing throughout the day? What are your analytical type of cognitive brute force tasks where you need to be distraction-free? And then what are those uh, coin dealer creative insight type of random tasks? And uh, yeah, once you've worked out your type and then once you've worked out the tasks the third step is then looking for synchrony trying to slot the right types of tasks in at the right type of day for you yeah so you might tackle the big important tasks that need your brute power brain strength or the ugly uh, frogs during your peak performance times whatever that might be whatever you do don't let the boring mundane tasks waste your prime time brain hours Mm. maybe just chill out and watch a bit of netty during the troughs (laughs) just get through that stuff and then focus on the important stuff and the peaks and the recoveries in the right possible yeah, way. Yeah, that's right. I reckon this was um, this is a, a good takeaway from this book, but maybe it was a bit of confirmation bias. Maybe it was like, okay, yeah, I do work pretty well in the morning and then in the other, I do work pretty shit. So yeah, maybe I should just watch some TV. Maybe I should go play some golf. Maybe I should just do nothing in the other. So maybe I took this one a bit too far. But uh, I think it is good to think, normally I'd probably first thing in the morning, I'd open up the email inbox and start going through emails. But that's like just wasting the peak. Instead, now it's time to focus on more important stuff and then you can just tick through the, the trough yeah, stuff in trough that, time. That'd have to be the lowest hanging fruit from this, I think, mm. is just like know when your peak is and then sort of optimize the ugly frogs for those moments. And if you go on next level pinker stinker, then you're probably um, looking at the recoveries as well. So that first section, we spoke all about the timing of the day. So we spoke about the those predictable patterns that we go through every single day. Now, the next part of timing that we're going to look at is timing more bigger types of projects, not the specific day-to-day stuff, but maybe the if we're taking a that helicopter ride up, we're going a bit higher up to look a bit further. So firstly, a bit like a story or whenever you do something, you got beginnings, endings, and somewhere in between. Now, Firstly, beginnings, they've actually got a far greater impact than most of us understand. They're a very big deal and the recipe is pretty straightforward because in most endeavors, we should always uh, aim to really leverage the start to make it as strong as possible. And of course, if that fails, then it's probably better to start again rather than just keep plowing through it. Sometimes it's better to just make a fresh start altogether. And Big Pink, he's took a lot of stuff from Katie Milkman, which we did that book, How to Change, right at the end of season six. And she spoke all about the fresh start effect. Now, Katie Milkman, she was the one who actually did the research. Dan's just Dan's just ripping it and writing it up in his book. That's his style, <laughs> mate. That's everyone's. That's what we did. <laughs> actually, that's exactly, that's what, exactly we did. what we did. We we, we, we got, fuck all. Man, we, Dan's, we, we that's got, an incredible idea. He should have, got, you know, he's taking the best bits from other people and just put them all together. Mate, why would you go to the effort of doing the research yourself? That's Katie right. Milkman, come on. Just, just, just flog it all. Steal like an artist, Katie. Anyway, we can. We got a few things to teach her. <laughs> but what she came up with, right, was like the importance of temporal landmarks, and uh, and her and her social scientist team found out the significance here, because just like we use physical landmarks to navigate the world, you know, you you turn left when you see that big green arrow. We can also use landmarks to navigate the time around us. If we start with these temporal landmarks, it's much more likely to stick. So rather than just starting at some 
random point in time, if we start at a point where we can mentally draw a line between the old you and the new you by kind of compartmentalizing based on these temporal landmarks, we're much more likely to make that change uh, that we want and get off to that strong start. So the big puffer is at the end or the end of every year or the start of every new year, January 1st, you got your New Year's resolutions, everyone just pumps them out and then <laughs> for a lot of people it falls <laughs> off pretty quickly. But the bad news on this one is there's only one January 1st mm each year to, to use that date. So, we probably want to go out mining for some other opportunities. Yeah. The good news is that even though there's only one January 1st, there's a whole bunch of other opportunities to make fresh starts. So, Katie Milkman doing this important research, uh, she found that compared to a normal day, students were 47% more likely to attend the gym on the first day of semester, 33% more likely on a Monday, 14% more likely on the first of a month, and 18% more likely the day after their birthday. don't know what it was yesterday but i was at the gym in the morning and there's normally no one there and there was like 10 people um oh. 10 people there so Man, i don't know what it the, was what was it first day of the season first, the first day of the month well, first, first monday of the month maybe first monday of the month it actually was oh there you go so a double there so uh temporal landmarks they do have a huge effect anecdotally as well as in the uh, in the research so there's a whole bunch of things that you can create a fresh start from first day of the month first uh, any monday the first day of a new season first day after a big national public holiday there's kind of the general ones anyone can use or you know you can have your own personal ones like an anniversary the first day of a new job the first day of a new course that you're studying your birthday the first day back from vacation the day you got a new pet the day you had a kid all these things are like your before and after fresh start opportunities a lot of us might do this a little bit unconsciously, but um, we could probably start doing a bit consciously more. We just came up with a 86 different days opportunities to to tackle a big what and make it more likely that you're going to nail the what. But again, it's just one of those things we never bring the when along for the ride when we probably should, eh? After beginnings, of course, we've got midpoints. And midpoints, you know, we remember the start, you know, you remember your first kiss or your first date, you remember the endings, you know, you remember when uh, you found out that someone passed away or something big came to an end, but the middles, they kind of get lost in the middle. But it turns out that the science of timing has found that middles can be really powerful. Sometimes hitting a midpoint can kind of numb our interests, stall our progress, but sometimes if we treat it right, they can actually stimulate and spark us. So those midpoints are very important because you either slump or you spark. Now let's think about uh, what actually happens here, and it's a bit of a bit of a U curve. And there was a study in 1965 that looked into happiness, and they found that it slumps the most between age 50 and 53. So poor old uh, doesn't sound great um, at all, does it? And they found that happiness and well-being starts really high in our teens, in our 20s, drops a little. Bottoms out in that age, 50 to 53. Then we start picking it up again uh, at 60s and beyond. So it's a little bit like that U-curve. And from this research is where the term midlife crisis came. And, and it's probably something we you know uh, associate with middle-aged men and women at the age of 50 attending Tony Robbins events and they just start <laughs> quitting their jobs and quitting everything and buying a fast uh, Man, we did that car. early then. <laughs> yeah, we did that early, didn't we? <laughs> we had an early midlife crisis. Yes, we did. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that at all, is there? <laughs> yeah, that's where you, the stereotypical, you see the, the new red Ferrari in the driveway and you think, oh, they're in the middle of the, the midlife crisis. Turns out monkeys have this too. When zookeepers were trying to assess monkeys' happiness, turns out the apes who are in the middle of their life, they were slumping big time. Mm, so human beings, monkeys... Also, Hanukkah uh, candles. So, it was the same U-shaped phenomenon popped up there. So, 
You got the uh, traditional box of Hanukkah candle. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Ash? Yeah, close enough. Hanukkah, yeah. Hanukkah. Uh, the point is that on the first night, you put one candle on the menorah and light a helper candle so that you use to light that one candle. So you have two on the first night. The second night, you use that to uh, light the next one and so forth and all the way up until night eight where you use nine candles. So eight uh, on the menorah plus the one you use to light the others. So you'd think that if you did it properly every night, then you'd use 44 candles and you know the box comes with 44 candles and you think, perfect, you use them all and you should be done by the end. But as you can probably guess, a lot of people when they get to day eight and they've lit up their candles, they realize there's actually still a handful of candles still in the box that didn't get used. And it turns out that the Hanukkah candles follow a bit of a U-curve as well. On the first night, almost everyone's doing it because it's the first night, so you light your, you light your candles. The second night drops down to 55%. The fifth and sixth night, you're down to 45% of people who are doing it. But then on night seven and eight, it picks back up again and we're back over 60%. People are like, okay, I've hit the midpoint. Oh shit! I've kind of stopped doing this, but this is a good reminder to get back onto it. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. The the way to get the kick up the ass to actually use the midpoint to your advantage is to utilize the oh shit, like yeah, you said the oh then, shit or uh, as as the pink man calls it, the uh oh effect. <laughs> and it, I think uh, the oh shit effect's a bit more powerful, isn't it? Oh shit! The, uh-oh uh-oh effect, oh shit. No, no one says uh all these days, do they? <laughs> Looks like if you got a month to do a project, and then you get to day fifteen. And the mental sirens start going off like, geez, I'm not halfway through this and I've used half, half the time. Yeah, so the, realizing that midpoint, that oh effect, the oh shit effect, it can be a good spark. If you realize, as you say, you're halfway through, but you're not halfway through, then you're like, okay, I better pull my finger out here and get back to it. So that if we're treating the midpoints properly, it can be a good spark there to get us to finish strong. Yeah, the pink man's onto it there. So you've got beginnings, midpoints, and now uh, what about endings? So he looks at the reasons why we kick harder near some finish lines more than others and our good old pals the, the rats that jump in the studies and they sacrifice themselves for the good of humanity uh clark he really did a number on them this time yeah clark hull back in the 1930s he came up with this theory called the goal gradient hypothesis where he, as you say he whipped out the lab rats put them in a maze he put some food at the finish line he measured how quick they were going through different sections of the maze. So as you realize, you know, they're they're kind of going through the maze, they're sniffing, they're getting, you know, they're trying to work out where to go. But as soon as they hit that last corridor, they can see the food, they can see the goal in sight, they start just absolutely bolting. So you're saying that once you, while you're going kind of, you know, moderately in the middle, once you get towards the end, you can really bloody go for it. Yeah, it's always really interesting to see that um, other animals like humans are always looking to make things faster at the end and get that happy ending. Um, (laughs) Do you know a bit about those, mate? <laughs> no, 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 no. Happy ending is and you're moving really fast oh, toward oh, the oh, end, sorry, Ash, Joe. I don't know where your <laughs> dirty, sick mind was going there, mate. But uh, they've got, he's got another example of where it does apply to humans here, if you want to pull us out of the gutter. Yeah, he talks about Kaiva, the non-profit organization. They finance small, low-interest or even no-interest loans to micro-entrepreneurs in uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds. What they do though, they don't just hand out money. The borrower has to fill out a lengthy form in order to be considered for the loan. Now, some people, they start the form because they think, great, I've got a cool idea. I could use a bit of extra funding to get this started. But then they're like, man, this is pages and pages and pages. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not finish this one here. So what the Kiva team did was they created a deadline 
completely arbitrarily, completely artificially. There's no deadline. You can do it whenever you want. But if they said, hey, you've got a deadline and the deadline's, you know, two weeks from today, you've got to finish it. They found that 24% more people went back and actually finished it because they're like, okay, there's a deadline here. There's an end point. I've got to kick harder towards the finish as the rats would have done. Yeah, deadlines work really well. There's another example here with marathons. So, let's say you sign up for a marathon and you put in your age and uh, it's amazing what they found um, through just looking at all the data was that the the number nine just kept popping up everywhere. It was overrepresented by uh, over 48% um, mm. compared to ones that didn't have all the other digits. Pretty Mate, weird, eh? Yeah. The most common age of people doing a marathon for their first time is 29, which is, I haven't, I'm in now, but I haven't signed up for one. I've, I've got about six months left. I don't think I will. But 29-year-olds are twice as likely to run a marathon for the first time as either 28-year-olds or 30-year-olds. Mm. It's a bit strange. Like, there's not really much difference between 28, 29, and 30, but the 29s are doing it twice as much. Happens with every nine. So, if someone who is 49 is three times more likely than the 50-year-old to run the marathon. It's obviously, you know, people, are, it's getting toward the end of the decade and you're <laughs> yeah. like, geez. What have I done with my life? <laughs> I better run a marathon. Do that do that. Are you, yeah, are you going to do the desperation, the marathon, the 29-year-old marathon? Nah, I don't think so. Mate, there's one here, Not I know you're asking about me, but nothing to do with me, but they say the, do you remember the extramarital affairs site, Ashley Madison? Mm-hmm. They found that the biggest time for blokes jumping on the site to uh, have affairs was 29, 39, 49 or 59. Uh, which is a lot higher than obviously statistically. So they're just the the end of a, a decade as you're coming towards the end. That's when you start asking questions about your life. Yeah, I remember it was a pretty weird age, 29. Actually, yeah. it's like a, when you're turning the turning the leaf onto 30. It's probably when I did my vipassana and stuff. Failed mm. that miserably. Did a few other random things like that, um, not realizing it was because of that. But you know, just going for the, the kick hard effect. What was it called the effect? This one, just the fast finished. The fast, fast finished. Finish, yeah. Mary, I remember there was a. Uh, I was talking. I went away for a weekend with a bunch of, uh, or not a bunch, but there was a couple of 22, 23 year olds, and they're like, "Oh, you're 29 now. You're closer to 40 than you are 18." I was like, "I think that's actually. I don't mind that. I reckon I'd rather be 40 than 18." Mm. But they were, they they couldn't believe it. They're like, "No, nah, no way. 40 so old." Maybe I'm just in denial. <laughs> Maybe well, you there's no. It's like the uh, the old sour grapes effect. There, yeah. so you can't be 18 <laughs> I can't, again. I can't go back to 18. So better off. Yeah, you're going to 40, to 40 inevitably. So I think you're right. I think uh, old sour grapes, mate. Anyway. That's it. So I guess when for the the old one in the pink man, he's he said, you know, you want to start strong. If you can't start strong, then start again. When you get to the middle, realize there's a bit of a oh shit effect to make you work a bit harder to get back into gear. And then of course when you Coming towards the end, and you want that happy ending, uh, then you then you then you kick a little bit harder and and finish her off. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Asher, you. <laughs> that was, and that's what that's word for word, Dan Pink, isn't it? No, it's it's Dan Pink mixed in with your six six mine. Oh, God. So, we're getting to the end here. Time is one of the most versatile and expansive words we have. It can be a noun, an adjective, or a verb. Yeah. It says in noun form, it can be like, you know, capital T time, like Greenwich Mean Time or Eastern Standard Time. We say how much time is left, you know, how much time do we have before we can leave? What time does a train leave the station? Am I having a good time? Am I having a bad time? I only made out with her one time. Uh, I only took the roller coaster ride one time. Uh, back in Winston Churchill's time or back in the hunter-gatherer's times. That's just all the nouns of time. As a verb, it has multiple meanings. You can time a race. We can time an attack. 
Uh, you can use it as an adjective as well. You can time bomb, time zone, time clock. There's a lot of things you can do with this word time. That's right. And pretty much everything that we're talking about, we're talking in tenses, past, present and future. The In most languages, different words are, are pronounced or spelled differently based on if you're talking about the past, present or future. So yeah, time's just pretty much intertwined. Uh, it's completely ingrained in the way we think. So when is a very big deal? Before reading this book, you probably didn't think about when. You just go about your day. You start just cruising through and just things just start happening. You're probably trying to think about what am I going to do? What are my goals? What, 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 Very rarely we actually uh, utilize when to our advantage. You might be strolling around your day as if you're three pints down doing your most important tasks. Um, you don't have to be. You can be quite dead sober in terms of uh, literally and also when you do things, getting those improvements. <laughs> That's right. Maybe before you might used to think that timing was everything, but now you can think that everything is timing. Mm-hmm.